Ladies and gentlemen, Happiness in Darkness proudly presents our 47th feature presentation, Superman 2. A group of terrorists seize the Eiffel Tower and threaten Paris with a hydrogen bomb if the French government does not meet their demands. Superman immediately heads to the French capital, where he launches the elevator carrying the bomb into outer space before it can detonate. Unfortunately, when the bomb explodes, it disintegrates the Phantom Zone, where three Kryptonian criminals, General Zod, Ursa and Non, had been imprisoned years before and are now set free. Immediately, the three criminals, led by the psychopathic General Zod, head to Earth with the intention of enslaving the people Superman protects. The Man of Steel, however, is unaware of their arrival and is forced to sacrifice his powers for a life with Lois Lane. When he finds out about Zod and his cronies, Superman returns to the Fortress of Solitude to regain his powers and confront the horrible Kryptonian criminals on his terms. Can Superman defeat the three villains, who are armed with identical powers to his own? Ciao my people, and welcome to our 47th episode of Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast where we cover superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, Image, and more. If it came from a comic and had a theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and today we'll be discussing Superman 2. And joining me to discuss the sequel to the highly successful first film is on one hand, the woman who picked this movie, Zan Sprouse. How are you doing, Zan? I'm good, Nick. How are you? I'm doing wonderful, thanks, and super happy to have you with us. And on the other, our surprise special guest, Molly Southgate. How are you doing, Molly? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I can't complain, Molly. Super happy to have you both with us today. So today we are reviewing Superman 2 from 1980, directed by Dick Lester, who we recently met on this podcast on Superman 3, written by Mario Puzo with David and Leslie Newman joining him on the screenplay. The original score is by Ken Thorne, picking up, of course, the legendary theme created by John Williams. So to put it into today's money... Uh, ladies, on estimate, this cost around $160 million to make, made around $594 million at the box office. So it definitely did well. So going to, the, to the, the woman who picked this film, as we mentioned before, Zan, why did you pick Superman 2 in particular? There's a couple of reasons why I picked it. First of all, I grew up loving the Superman movies. That was mostly my exposure to Superman as a kid was through the movies. And... This one was just so crazy with the three Kryptonians, and so there's more people that can fly, more people with the heat vision. I felt like, while I, I think I always sort of felt like Ken Thorne's score was not as good as a John Williams score, because what is? But I felt <laughs> like the, the, the their, their sort of drum-based theme for the Kryptonians I always thought was very, very creepy. And this one has probably my favorite moment of acting from Christopher Reeve in this movie. And my favorite Lois Lane quote (laughs) from all of the, from all of the Superman movies. And I think this one is an interesting story about how it became to be the movie that it is about how it started out very different 
with very different storylines, very different scenes. And Richard Donner was directing it. And then he got in an argument with Pierre Spengler and the Salkinds about money. And then they fired him and brought in Richard Lester, who I've only seen two of his other movies and they were both Beatles movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's my favorite of yours. Yeah, and so it's funny because I love those Beatles movies, and I think they're fantastic comedies, but I think his attempts to put comedy in this movie just fall very, very short. So I think this movie is an interesting one to talk about, about what it what we love as it is, and also what could have been. And there's also funny little stupid things in here to talk about. It's one of those movies that... You've seen a million times, and every time you watch it again, you find some other stupid little thing to question. For for example, in this one, we were watching it again, just to brush up on it. Like, I don't think I'd ever need to watch this movie again in my life, but I still have it memorized (laughs) from how many times I watched it on tape in the 80s. But uh, the scene when they are in Houston, and what is it, East Houston, Iowa, that they actually wind up in? Um, And they're in the road, and the police are trying to get them out of the road and the one rookie cop has the shotgun at him and general zod heats it up and you just want to say why did the wood turn red hot i mean i get the metal but why is the wood red (laughs) it's just little things like that so i thought this one would be fun to talk about for what it is and what it could have been well i mean it is definitely a very interesting movie Rewatching it now i would say molly when it comes to you was this the first time you sat down to watch this one because knowing you of course were raised in a superhero household you know between your dad and your mom and such and you being a superhero fan movie fan yourself was this your first uh, watch when it came to superman 2 it was so i had previously seen superman 1 but i was very young when i watched that so when i was watching this i was going wait was this just a weird Superman fever dream I had, or did that actually happen in the first one? <laughs> and, um, yeah, so this was my first time, and I thought, I, I actually really liked it. There were there were some elements, though, like you said before, Zan, where it was like, wait, but the logic of this makes no sense. Like, how did he go into this chamber? You saw him the whole time, and then he emerges, and he has different clothes on. Yeah, like that wax. Kind of now, yeah. now he he was Superman. Now he has slacks, and that's a good that's a good example of in the original movie, he's in the original Richard Donner footage, which had Marlon Brando, and Marlon Brando said, "Keep me out of this unless you give me eleven percent of the box office." And they said, "Yeah, we're not oh. doing that." Bye. So they that's why they hired Susanna York to come back and do those mother voice from the past scenes, but in the original version, it's pretty much the same conversation but it's Marlon Brando and he is actually wearing slacks so it, it, it's like they took the the slacks footage of when he emerges but they redid the talking to his parents footage where he's in the Superman outfit. yeah it, I, yeah my dad was just saying to me he's like don't try and logic this movie no do not know no 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 because I mean and even the original ending of this movie makes even less sense than the current ending of this movie. So that's one thing that I kind of really do like about the change. But there are going to be some nonsensical things because of, you know, we had about 75% of the movie shot by Richard Donner. And then Richard Lester came in and redid some stuff. So they don't always, they don't always match up. <laughs> it's yeah. like trying to get a puzzle piece together and it kind of fits. So you just kind of pound it with your fist and then you're like, okay, we're done with the puzzle. Let's do this. And then somehow it tops all the box offices. Yeah. Like, how did that that's, happen? 
the same way something as disappointing as Back to the Future 2. You know, everybody was so excited to see a sequel to this movie that everybody went to it. So, yeah. That's my theory, at least. I think you make a good point there, Zan. It probably was, I think, sequel fever as it was. And obviously the first movie did so, so well. And you know, obviously, they're going to they're gonna milk that cow for as much as they're worth, naturally. And so, of course, they had to come out with a sequel. But I actually believe they filmed the two back-to-back, almost like when they did the Lord, yep. they did the Lord of the Rings years later. So they already had a sequel in the can ready to, to go anyways. But I do think probably the success box office-wise is probably because of that. But so let's get to our players on the board here, ladies, starting with the guy who puts the man in Superman, Christopher Reeve, repri- reprising his role from the first film as, of course, Clark Kent and Superman. So when it came to our leading guy in this film, and of course, uh, you know, a lot of people's favorite superhero, what did you think, Molly, of this Superman in this film and, you know, what we got of Clark Kent? I loved him in this so much. I really thought when I, because I've read not very many of the comics, but I've read a little bit. And when I, when I was watching this, I was like, this is exactly how I pictured him to sound, how I pictured him to look, like, act everything. I really liked him. Like, I, I didn't think that it was, like, the greatest performance on, on a movie that I've ever seen, but I thought for what it was for a Superman, like, Mary Sue type character, mm. I thought that he did a great job. Well, uh, great. And um, when it comes to you, Zan, you know, what were your thoughts on this, uh, you know, second version of uh, of Superman, you know, coming off, you know, the first film? Christopher Reeve is Superman, in my mind. They're like the same guy. Because, <laughs> like I said, I mean, that, this was my, this movie came out in 1978. I was born in 1976. And I think I've talked about this before with you, Nick, but in the 80s, being a girl and trying to go into a comic shop and break into something midway through was not easy. So there was a time when comic books were a little intimidating when I was a kid. So what I knew were these movies. And so for me, he is Superman. You know, like you said, Molly, when I'm reading it now, I'm hearing Christopher Reeve's voice. And I think he does such a great job with his character. And I don't remember where I heard this uh, or who gave him this advice, but he was talking to somebody about um, the difference between how he acts when he's Superman and how he acts when he's Clark Kent. And somebody said to him, no, no, you are always Superman. And when you're Clark Kent, you are Superman pretending to be Clark Kent. It's not like it's two different characters that you as Christopher Reeve are playing. You are always Superman. And I think he really took that to heart because I think he really does that, which is why I think he's a little overstated with the way he stammers and his voice is a little nasally. And he's very I think he really plays up his nerdiness because he is Superman pretending to be somebody else. Um, I mentioned a minute ago that my favorite scene, my favorite bit of Christopher Reeve Superman acting is in this movie. Um, My second favorite is in the first movie after Superman has taken Lois Lane flying and then he's in her apartment and all he does is take off the glasses and straighten up. And all of a sudden he's Superman. I mean, he's in the suit, he's in Clark Kent's suit, he's everything Clark Kent, but all he has to do is take off those glasses and straighten up. And then there's Superman is right there in her apartment, and taking that to another level in this movie, 
And I just, whenever I watch this scene, I cry because it's so good. And I miss Christopher Reeve so much. But it's the scene in the hotel room when he's going to bring Lois her brush and he trips over the fake pink bear skin rug and he falls into the fire. (laughs) And she's like, oh my God, are you okay? And takes his hand out of the fire and he's fine. And that's when she realizes that he actually is Superman. And he kind of like, dang it. And like gets up and walks away. And then he's over by the bedpost and he straightens up again, but this time it's his back. You're seeing, you're not even seeing his face. His back is to the camera and he just straightens up and becomes Superman from behind. I'm, I think that is unparalleled superhero acting. It is the, the absolute greatest moment in performance i think when you're doing a dual type of character i think it's amazing well very well said yeah um i mean uh, you know i love henry cavill but i think he definitely it lacks that i think when it comes to that i suppose there obviously they are modern movies when you think of like man of steel for example is maybe done for a in inverted commas modern audience is more modern superman so he's not as nerdy as it was possibly superman all the time as you were saying zan but here i think it's much more distinct like you were saying, and um, and you know when it came to this to this performance, I think we pretty much pick up where we left off with Clark, because of course once again we see his head over heels about Lois, and she's completely besotted with Superman, but of course doesn't give Clark the time of day. And just like the first film in Superman three, which we discussed here on this podcast, I very much enjoyed both personas. As Clark is very true to the comics, you know, being a little bit more bumbling and accident prone, trying rather, I think, clumsily to flirt with Lois and taking every chance he gets to be with her, even when it means him sleeping on the couch in a luxurious, I guess. The complimentary couch. (laughs) Yeah. Even though I think the bed might be a little bit dodgy. So he might have chosen, the couch might have been a better choice. Um, The bed just starts vibrating for no reason. It is very dodgy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Can I actually add something about that part? So when they go to the hotel, I have been reading some fan fiction recently. And when I read that, when I saw that part, I'm like, this is just fanfic. I'm like, they go, they, they go on a case and they have to go together but and pretend to be newlyweds in Niagara Falls with a honeymoon suite. And there's only one bed. And I th- f- found that uh-huh. part so funny. And like, I told my mom <laughs> later and she's like, well, now I have to watch this movie because of that. And yeah, I, I loved that so much. That that whole scene was great with that bellhop, like you and Mr. And Mrs. <coughs> Smith. Like he's totally does he totally doesn't even believe that they're married, <laughs> and he's all with the innuendo, and he's and uh, and he's like the boudoir photos, and here's our tub for two. I mean that room is so freaking tacky. But I oh, will yeah. say to this day, if I ever build a dream house, my bedroom will have lava lamp pillars in it. Well, I, I'm all for that, Zan. That's that's beautiful. I love lava lamps. I actually used to own one. Sadly, it got broken, and that's why I definitely have to replace it someday. Um, but thinking actually of that bellhop, just to briefly go on a brief tangent here, I have a feeling that he was he was the basis for a character, a throwaway character in inverted commas we get in The Simpsons, where um, Homer and one of his <laughs> con- How the there fuck? you go. That's right. <laughs> you got it. Where Homer and Mindy yep. are supposed to be wet, and I have a feeling. They did take from this bell hall. I'm only going to be using this bed for eating, sleeping, and possibly building a fort. <laughs> As always, the woman knows her, her Simpsons references. Oh, yes, I'm here for you for your Simpsons references, Nick. 
Thank you, Zan. I really appreciate that. It's, it's, see, that's that, that's an added value indeed. And um, but yeah, going back, to, of course, to, to the super, to Superman character here, he is incredibly caring and loving when it comes to Lois. And of course, as Superman, you know, he's everything you would want from the character. He's true blue. He's good-hearted. And but before we actually and before we actually discuss it in more detail, something that I, since we touched up on it a little bit, what did the two of you make of the relationship between Lois and Clark as it develops? In this second film, let's start with you, Zan. What did you make of uh, our two characters and them ostensibly falling in love? It's so it's such a problematic thing because it's the it's the typical and you see it in this movie. It's it's the standard superhero trope of your superhero can't care about anyone because that will be used against them. So you know you're thinking. And, and and you're thinking that he's trying to do this, and it's even it's even worse in the original version of this movie, um, when he's telling his father how much he loves Lois and how he wants this one thing to be to have to have the love of his life, and he's saying this. He's like, well, if you if you're gonna act like one of them, you're gonna have to be one of them, and she's watching this and you're just, you're just in your mind. You're thinking, Oh my God, stop him. Stop him. I know you love him too, but he can't sacrifice this much for you. Um, so you have this sort of really torn. It's that love can, that can never be thing. So it's just so tragic because he can't be human and she can't be Kryptonian. And so they can't really be together. And if they try, it just goes horribly, horribly wrong. It's like the one day he picks, finally, I'm going to be human is the one day that like General Zod shows up on earth. (laughs) So so we, it, it really illustrates how the world needs Superman more than Lois Lane needs Superman. So she has to, she has to realize that he has to realize that they have this lovely weekend together where they, you know, have sex in their silver porno bed and he makes souffle with his eyeballs and it's nice for them. But then immediately, even when they're in the car driving, he's saying, you're awfully quiet. And you know, she's probably thinking, yeah, you're kind of not Superman anymore. Then that scene in the diner where she says, I want the man I fell in love with. He says, I know you do. And I wish he were here. And, and Lois does figure it out. And that this I mentioned my favorite Lois Lane line mm-hmm. where he's where she's talking to him in the morning about how she was up all night listening to the voices of reason and and how vulgar it is to hear the first bird of the morning when you've been up all night crying. And she says she's just she's realizing that she's selfish and he's trying to comfort her and says, no, you're not selfish. She says, yes, I am selfish when it comes to you. I am selfish and I am jealous of the whole world. And I'm just like, that is so freaking true. You can't love somebody like this who is here for the rest of the planet. And so their love story is so tragic that it just, you're so thankful that at least he gives her the gift of making her forget. So she doesn't have to come to work every day and see him and know who he is and not be with him. I mean, he knows what torture that's going to be for him. Mm -hmm. And he spares her that. So he's almost... He's even better. I mean, you, lo- you, you love him even more, and you know that if Lois knew that he did that for her, that she would love him even more. So the whole thing is just even more tragic. So they're, they're just a heartbreaking love story, frankly. 
Very much so. And, and what about you, Molly? What did you make of the, the relationship between uh, Clark and Lois? Well, I love Lois Lane so much, and I, I'll get to talk, I've got a lot of thoughts about her, so I'll get to that later. Yeah. But I, 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 di- I do definitely believe that they're genuinely in love, and, but I really struggled with when he gave up his powers, and she was saying, as you said, Dan, I, I want the man I love, because that made me feel like she doesn't love him as Clark Kent, and she doesn't love him as Superman that much. She likes his powers, and she likes what he represents. But I felt very conflicted while I was watching it. Because I was like, well, it it's set up like, oh, look at how much they're in love, but is she really in love with him, or does she just like the fact that he saves the world? But then she just wants him for herself, and I, hmm, I'm, I'm trying to think it's about hard, how isn't to it? word this right. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it, it was like, I... It, really made me question their love story in it but around that part when he because he clearly loves her and what I really got off of him is that when he was Superman he was still like he was like powerful but he still was a little bit nerdy just a little and so he still is Clark Kent like that's who he was raised as and I felt like if she couldn't accept that side of him does she actually love him or and he clearly loves her so it was i i have uh it was very hard to watch this and try and develop an opinion about their love story because it seems so beautiful and like it's just like something that's to, like like what you were saying it's like very heartbreaking and like romeo and juliet-esque but then oh it begs questions about does she actually care about him as much as we think that's a really good point because does she like the tough guy or does she like the square sensitive guy or does she want them? But like, I feel like Lois and you're right. Lois Lane is a fabulous character and I love her too, but she, I think she does need to do some soul searching on what she actually loves. And because, you know, he, he definitely does love her, but you know, there, I think there's, I think there's part of her, that does love his more, for lack of a better term, more human side. You know, the one who was just totally enthralled with him, you know, telling her all of his vital statistics. And <laughs> she's doing the, I spent the night with Superman interview. Um, but yeah, I think she needs to really think about what it is that she's in love with. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I also very much enjoyed it. I mean, it shows you, I think, how much Clark does love Lois and it, it is, I mean, to the point of where he's willing to give up his powers forever, apparently, to be with her, which, to be honest, I didn't, I, I was I was kind of conflicted myself as I didn't quite sort of see why he couldn't keep those powers and be with Lois, for, you know, having to listen to his his mom either, or, or his dad, depending on what version of the film you watch. But she's, of course, and well, of course, she is, at first, seems in awe of his choice. And I like that. It, you get the initial impression that she might be happy living with a depowered Superman, but then we do get that moment in the car where she seems a little bit downcast, so you do kind of question it a little bit. But outside of that, I think Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeve have excellent chemistry, and they work super well in the scenes they are in together. And before we actually do look at Lois and Margot Kidder in greater detail, I did want your theories on a question that has plagued fans through the ages. Which Where'd the is, car come from? <laughs> one is where the car comes from, and we can definitely look at that one, Zam. But the other one that I actually did, uh, wanted to ask you both is: 
if he apparently becomes human, and it, apparently it's an irreversible process, how did he get his powers back? Because all we get is a shot of him in the Fortress of Solitude where he picks up this green crystal and then it cuts back kind of to him being Superman again. Um, I, go ahead, Molly. What's your oh, theory? I was, saying, I was so confused when that happened. Because I was thinking, I was just now wondering, I'm like, are they going to start talking about how he gets his powers back? I was hoping that you would because I thought I missed something. Here. I thought I zoned out. I was like, did... What happened? What, You're like, does my did, DVD have a scratch yeah. in it? Did I miss a few, like five minutes? Yeah. Of this movie? Yeah. <laughs> so I and I've not I have not watched the other cut of it, like the director's cut. So do they explain it at all in that? They do. In okay. The, yeah. In the in the Donner version, what happens is is he goes back and he finds he does find the green crystal again. Now my theory in the original theatrical version is that. He finds the green crystal and it's still lit up and he just starts over. He just throws it again like he does in the first movie. That was always my theory, that he just throws it again and it creates another Fortress of Solitude. It just had one more, it had one more charge in it, was my theory. Um, but the Donner cut, what happens is, is he goes back and he finds the green crystal and it's lit up and he puts it in the one remaining... Because you saw how his crystal console was you know, blackened and burned out. He finds the one remaining crystal receptacle, puts the crystal in there. Marlon Brando shows up again, basically saying, I knew you'd figure out that you made a mistake. <laughs> I knew this would happen. So in order to give you your powers back, every remaining bit of my life force that I've given you within these crystals and within these walls, I'm going to have to give over to you and I can never come back. So oh. he... So he has to, so, and then he gives you the, the, the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son line again. And he essentially transfers his remaining life force residual energy, all the, his residual life force energy that he's put in the crystals, he then just puts, puts into Kalel. And he, it's a, it's a, he sort of like convulses and then he, he's able to be Superman again. So, but that, that that's sense. how Richard Donner did it. But like I said, my theory was, is he did, he just did the same, he did the same thing as he had done in the first Superman where he finds the green thing. He finds another part of the North Pole, throws it, and then it makes another Fortress of Solitude. It makes another Crystal Console. And uh, so that was my, that was my thought, but... Well, what about what about you, Nick? What was your theory? I mean, you know what? Yeah, because I was kind of totally like, like Molly is like, is there something missing in this in the DVD? Did I fall asleep without realizing it or something? And mm -hmm. you know, so I kind of re rewound it in inverted commas. I went back a little bit, and there was nothing. Um, I actually my my thought thought was either it was just um, it was psychologically he thought he thought he wasn't Superman anymore, but that Ooh, would negate. I like that. But that would mean, but at the same time, you know, I guess it would negate what then happens to the three Kryptonians. But I, but because at first I thought it could almost be like psychological, you know, that it's just you think you're no longer Superman when you actually are. And so I thought it was maybe some kind of mind wipe or mind trip they put on him. So he's forgotten he has his powers. And so he's unable to use them, as it were. That was kind of my theory. But like I said, unfortunately, it's got a few, that, that theory, though. You know, could be an interesting one, but it's full of holes because it, it, you'd have to change the ending when it comes to the three Kryptonians being depowered. So, 
Um, it's it, it was a tough one, but you know, thanks for filling in the blanks for us, Zan, because I think to myself, you know, for the theater going public who didn't have the director's cut, they must have been seriously confused. <laughs> it's like, and that, I guess that was my benefit of seeing this movie when I was what, what year was this movie? 81? Uh, 78. Uh, 78, yeah. No, original Superman was 78. What was this one? Uh, this uh, was 80, 80, 80, pardon me. 80, okay, 80. Um, I was like five when I first saw this movie. <laughs> so I think I was able to sort of really let my imagination run away with me. And, you know, and I, and I also, I, you have that kid imagination that runs wild, but it also has certain parameters of what you're able to understand as a child. And so for me, Green Crystal builds the thing. So if the green crystal is what builds it, then that's why that's why he did it. So I, maybe I had the benefit of being a little kid, but um, but then again, I've always done that. I've always like made up little backstories for movies to help movies that don't make sense make sense to me. <laughs> but I have never ever been able to figure out how at the North Pole, at the Fortress of Solitude, they were able to find a rental car company and drive home from that. Because you would just you know, want to say like maybe it's another made up Superman power that wasn't in the cars. There you go. He could just yeah, exactly. There's a car there. Cars. Yeah, you can just he he he's a car collector. He just keeps him at the Fortress of Solitude. But yeah, it's like maybe if you're gonna not be Superman, maybe do it in the city and not at the North Pole where you have to hike back. Because that's another thing you see him when he's when he leaves the diner. He's like, I have to try, and he's like hiking through the North Pole, like trying to get back up there. <laughs> so yeah, you're like, exactly. how did you guys get home? It's a little weird. Many, many questions. I mean, unless unless there is a rental company in the North Pole, but they must have very bad business when Superman's not it's around. Like, yeah. Nick, it's like it's like that Simpsons episode where there's the one crusty burger on the oil rig. <laughs> and Krusty's walking around like, oh, I'm taking a bath on this place because no one goes to it because it's an it's a crusty burger on an unmanned oil rig. And yeah. Homer, who has been lost. You know, that he got lost on the camping trip and he comes up, he's like, I want 800 Krusty Burgers. Like, it's like the what finally a couple shows up like we need a car. They're like, yes, we can stay in business. It's like the one blockbuster that's left in the world. It's they're just so excited when people come in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. So so as we mentioned, uh, ladies, let's get to our leading lady who you both seem to really, really like. So I'm sure we're going to get some great thoughts on this one. Margot Kidder, of course, reprising her role as Lois Lane. So let's start with you here, Zan. You know, what did you think of the Lois we got in this film? Uh, this is I you know, I'm going to make my father angry by saying this. <laughs> but, uh, also, to me, Margot Kidder is Lois Lane. You know, my dad, um, my dad is a, is a solid Noel Neal man. <laughs> so, um, but for, yeah, for me, she definitely is Lois Lane and I, I, I like her Lois Lane, but I do think that she, she's very cynical. I think she spent so much of, and, and I, and I apologize for, for dipping back into the first movie as often as I have been so far, but like we said, they were filmed at the same time. It's kind of, they're kind of like part one and part two of the same movie in, in my head. So there's that scene in the first movie where he's, where she's talking about how she's going to go to the airport to try and get the president to answer some questions. And he's like, wow, Lois, don't you ever stop? He's, she says, why? I've seen how the other calf lives. Look at my sister, three kids in a house in the suburbs. Ugh, no, thank you. I think she's very cynical about love and because of her being so so 
laser focused on her being an independent career woman, it's almost like she sort of forgets that there's other options for love. Like, it's not like laser focused career women or mom in the suburbs. It's not like those are the only two choices. And so I feel like her cynicism sometimes makes her a little bit. She, she needs a little more soul searching, I think, when it comes to how she actually feels about Superman or take that scene when they're in Niagara Falls and he's like, hey, everybody's holding hands. Maybe we should hold hands, you know, just to fit in. <laughs> Wink. And she says, oh, you know why they're holding hands? They're afraid to let go because as soon as you let go straight to the lawyer. So she's so cynical about marriage and that part of love that I think that she maybe hasn't given too much thought about what she actually wants out of love. Maybe. I don't know. I think that might be why she's such, I don't want to say such a cynic or so enamored with the, on the, uh, with Superman's surface traits more than anything else. But I, I do, I, I do still really like her as a character. I think she does some dumb stuff in this movie. Like, I'm not really sure why being on the bottom of an elevator is a good idea unless here's here's the thing. This is another time where I'm watching this movie for the like millionth time and I'm thinking of these questions. She's trying to get like the exclusive story <laughs> like from the terrorists. So she's sitting under the elevator. All right. Well, aren't the terrorists technically aren't they French? And we already know she can't speak French. <laughs> because she's been trying to talk to the cops in really bad French. So and they stole her translator. Yeah. <laughs> well, she left it with him so she could run off with it. So so she she left him with it so, and ran away. So I think she she sacrificed it more than anything. But yeah, she has no dictionary. She's left it with the cop. So now she's going to be under the elevator and trying to listen to these terrorists speak in French and and how's she going to write it down? Like I don't <laughs> I don't know where that was all about. Um I think jumping into the Niagara Whirlpool is a really stupid idea. <laughs> I know she's trying to prove a point, but there's got to be a better way. In the original movie, in the original, not in the original, in Richard Donner's version of it, um, she shoots him. She has a gun and she shoots him. And of course, it doesn't do anything. And they're in their hotel room. And he's. He's like, you know, Lois, if you'd been wrong, Clark Kent would be dead. And she just said him and says, with a blank? She shoots him with a blank, but he doesn't know that. So he thinks that he's been outed by her, basically. So it's a little more, a little less risk to her and a little more intimate of a situation. So she does, I think she's stupider in this movie than I think Lois Lane really is. Um, but I still like her and like I said I love her vulnerability with her realizing how much she loves Superman and like I said I'm jealous of the whole world and how she realizes and I stayed up all night listening to the voices of reason she understands that this can't be the way it's going to be and it's going to be hard but she's going to do it um I feel like she does grow as a character with that part and I love her punching out Ursa I think that's fantastic I love that scene where she just turns around, you know, some you're a real pain in the neck and just whacks her right down the side of the glacier. (laughs) So I think she does some, she does some dumb stuff, but I think she grows as a character in this movie. Well, well said. And what about you, Molly? What were your thoughts on Lois? Because I believe you have, you have quite a bit to to, to say when it comes to to her. 
Yes, for sure. So as I said before, I do love this character, but the reason I really love her is because of she has so much agency in this movie. And I feel like around this time, a lot of the female characters did not have as much agency. They were there more as set pieces or just to, to be the damsel in distress. But she does get saved by Superman because she was going and yes, it is stupid, but she was going and trying to do something for her career to get a story that she needed to try and get a Pulitzer Prize. And she has like, I feel like she's a very fully fleshed out character and I, 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 like I said earlier, I think that her dynamic with Superman is like so interesting and I'm, yeah, I, I really, really thought that she was just excellent in this and like, I, yeah, just the, I'm trying to think about what else to say about her. I watched this movie earlier today and I've already done a podcast today, so I'm trying to get all my thoughts in order. <laughs> But, yeah, the agency was a really big one. I was just really shocked throughout this whole movie because when I've read, like, a little bit of the comics, but not too much, so not judging the comics here, but my impression of Lois Lane was that she was just the damsel in distress for Superman and occasionally trying to figure out who he was. And this really, really took away all of that stigma I had had around her. Well, definitely. I mean, I think she she does very much embody, you know, what she had in the first film. You know, you do get the plucky reporter who's not afraid to put her life at risk, even sometimes not making the best decisions. I mean, she does end up being the damsel in distress more often than not, which can get a little tiring or repetitive. But I guess eighties movies and but. I was I was also glad that that we finally got a, a point where she susses out that Clark was Superman, because in the comics it took it took forever to do, and for non comic book readers this has been a gripe for many years for comic book readers that how can she not tell that Clark and Superman are one the same? I'm glad that we actually got that in the sequel. It didn't take like 55 movies to get there, but I do feel bad for her. You know when when super what I did feel feel bad about was when Superman erases her memory. And this is another thing which I thought was rather odd because a lot of our characters have very odd powers in play compared to what we know. And we will actually see this with the Kryptonians, the other Kryptonians as well. When it actually came to that moment where Superman erases her memories. Um, Zan, what did you think of that? I mean, were you happy with that and that we got that apparently Superman can mind white people? That was weird. Like, when was this a power of Superman? I feel like these movies sort of make up powers for Superman as it's convenient mm-hmm. for them. You know, mind wiping, time travel. <laughs> teleportation. So, teleportation. What the heck is that? I used to play this game as a kid. No, you didn't. We read those books. We you, you never played this game as a kid. Um, when could he... Yeah, he can turn his... Uh, his insignia into a giant piece of cellophane. If you, I mean, there, there, it makes up things for Superman to do. And these, that is, I think, a kind of an issue when you really stop to think about it. It's fun to watch, but you're like, wait a minute, this movie breaks its own rules by making up new rules. So there's that part of it on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think it is so generous of him and so heartbreaking for him because this is now a burden he has to bear by himself. The only other person that he could probably have ever talked to that understands how this feels doesn't remember it anymore. He does this for her to spare her 
the pain she's obviously in and the pain he knows she's going to be in because he's in the same pain. But he does this for her to spare her of that. And now he can't even call her at two in the morning and be like, this is torture, right? You know, just have that sort of, you know, that, that calling your ex, like, did we really make the right decision? You know, he can't even do that at some point. So I, I like it. And I like that. It, it, because he's, he's not only saving her from the heartbreak, he's trying to save her life. Because if anything like this ever happens again, that's who they're going for. They, they actually say it in this movie. If he cares so much for these Earth people, why not let's take his favorite? And so she's going to be bait forever. You know, that's why Spider-Man breaks up with Mary Jane all the time. Because she's, she becomes bait. And he knows that that's going to happen. And so he's he's trying to he he's trying to save her. So I think it's a very Superman thing for him to do, very self-sacrificing, other people first. It's very in keeping with his character. the The mind erasing thing is new, but <laughs> the concept behind it is very in keeping with Superman's selfless nature. It definitely is very much a Superman thing to do. And and what about you, Molly? What did you think of uh, of what Superman does for, to Lois's memories? And should we say this added power that Superman has? Yeah, I, I have very similar thoughts to Zan's. I was actually wondering throughout this, though, when I saw that. And bit, I was conflicted because I was thinking, is this something that Superman would actually do? Because he's a character that is so ethical. And it taking... Like, just kissing her and taking away her memories. And I was like, how far did he take away? Like, how how much did he take? Like, what does she... Like, I, I thought that was... I loved at the end, though, when she's like, so what's been happening in the world? And <laughs> after that. But it did make me wonder, like, how does he control his power? To know, like, what is going away? It, once again, cannot try to logic this movie. But I... Yeah, it was it was a very heartbreaking point because I loved seeing them together, but I under I understood that it had to be done. I think you're onto something there, though, with how ethical he is. You know, he's he's not going to go too far with his powers ever. He's he's Superman. He he's he is too ethical. I mean, even yeah. Lex Luthor even Lex Luthor says it. You know, it's like it's like you know. I got to hand it to you. A guy always knew where he stood with you. He never lied to me. <laughs> so I, I, I think that, that, that you're right. It's his ethics that, that are going to keep him honest with his apparently infinite number of everyday new powers that show up. <laughs> oh, yes. Also, how did no one in their office notice that Clark Kent and Lois Lane their in the middle? Their office full of windows? That, yeah, the <laughs> office filled with Thank windows. You. How did no one see that? And then she could, and I think there was someone standing in there. They see her pass out, but they don't see him kiss her. I, yeah, it's it's extremely convenient. Yep. <laughs> is that in the Donner Cut? No, the Donner Cut is extremely different. The Donner Cut makes zero sense. Personally, I oh. like this ending. I like this ending much better. In in the Donner cut, Superman turns back time again. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he turns back time Uh again, but you don't see him. 
Well, I, I'll have to go back even further. Okay, in the in the Donner Cut, there's no France. There's no Paris terrorism. By the way, one of those terrorists is Uncle Vernon from the Harry Potter movies. My dad um, called it. I didn't yeah. believe him. I told him, I was like, no, that's not. What are you talking no, that's about? Uncle, yeah, that's Uncle Vernon. <laughs> oh, my. Um, so there's no Paris scene. The nuclear explosion in space that cracks the Phantom Zone is the Hackensack missile from the first movie. When Superman, you know, gets the Hackensack missile to save Miss Testmacher's mother, that goes into outer space, and that's what. And when it explodes, that's what cracks the Phantom Zone. So it's the same concept. There's a bomb, in, a nuclear bomb in space. So what happens is, is you see him turning back time. Um, it's actually an interesting scene. You see Perry White go to brush his teeth, and then all of a sudden the toothpaste stops, and then the toothpaste goes back up into the tube. And you realize, oh, Superman's doing his thing again. So then you see him, you know, everything goes back to normal. And then you see the Phantom Zone not get cracked. But then you're like, how does, how did you get, what point did you stop that the Phantom Zone didn't get cracked? And does that mean you didn't save the Hackensack? And then did you still save low? What, it made zero sense. Like it was too wibbly wobbly, timey wimey for me. So. This ending, I will hand it to Richard Lester, actually makes a little more sense than the Donner Cut one did. Well, it definitely sounds like it for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so um, you know, before we move on to the um, to our villains here, ladies, what, I, what, did you guys have any other thoughts on uh, on the characters we previously mentioned, or or other characters like, say, Perry White and Jimmy Olsen? Um. I have one more thing to add about Go Superman. ahead, Mark. Go ahead. I had kind of touched on this earlier, but not really, like, fully talked about it. I love so much that I love them showing his nerdier side as Superman, even. And I could just totally picture him sitting there and reading Dickens at night. And I don't, I didn't feel that with any other Superman that I've seen. Like, I could not see him as a real person. And I just think that that's something for Christopher Reeve's performance. I really, really greatly enjoyed that. And, and what about you, Zan? Did you have any other thoughts or, uh, or even anything? I mean, granted, they're barely in this film, but, you know, you loving the first film as, uh, very much as well. Any, any final thoughts on Lois or, or, um, or Clark or, or even Perry White or Jimmy Olsen? Um, I, I, I do. I, I really do like Jackie Huber's Perry White, I think, he does a, a great job of the hard-boiled news guy. And um, Mark McClure is Jimmy Olsen, I think, is fantastic. He uh, he told a story one time about how he got the part. And he came into casting director, and I forget who else was there, but one of them had a houseboat. Or he, he was living on a houseboat at the time. And so that's all that the interview was, was, was about living on a houseboat. <laughs> like, it had oh. nothing to do with anything. <laughs> and then... And then they, at the end of it, when he's, when he's walking out, they're like, so Jimmy Olsen, what do you know about him? And he's like, golly, Mr. Kent. And like that got him the part. So I think he does, he does a, a, a great job of being that character. But again, they're, they're they are kind of not very used in this, but they do have the don't call me sugar joke. And, you know, they're, I think they're, uh, that whole crew of people at the paper, I think is always very fun to watch them together, their their dynamic. Oh, yes. I mean, I thought it was a bit of a shame that they weren't given as much screen time as they do get in, in the first Superman. I mean, you do get a little bit, I think, of Jimmy Olsen in Superman 3, but 
it's a shame because they because they are so well played, and of course, you know, they they're big parts of the of the uh, comics as well. And so I was just a little bit sad that we didn't get more Perry White and more Jimmy Olsen. But I guess that's that's how it goes. You have to move your story forward. And speaking of moving forward, let's leap to the dark side of the table, starting with our mortal human villain returning once again to the franchise, Mister Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Now, Molly, when it came to you, and I'm sure you probably had seen Man of Steel and Jesse Eisenberg's performance as Lex, what do you think of, uh, of Gene Hackman's version? Okay, well, when you said Gene Hackman's name just now, I, like, pumped my fists up in the air, because I'm <laughs> so excited for this part. I think that he was the best part of the movie. And no matter how much I loved other areas, how much other areas didn't make sense, he was overall the highlight. I felt like every line he said, it was just killing me. Like, he was played every note just right. He was hilarious. And when my dad and I were seeing it, we were talking about how great his voice is, too. Because he has this great quality to it. And he definitely is not the Lex Luthor from the comics, or from pretty much any other Superman franchise. Right. But the way he plays it, he makes it his own in such a beautiful way. And I really loved that. Ooh. Well, and, and what about you, Zan? I mean, were you, uh, is this, should we say, your Lex Luthor? I mean, I suppose you'd also, you had also seen uh, Jesse Eisenberg as Lex, Lex Luthor as well in Man of Steel. Yes, I had. <laughs> and I do feel like any other Lex Luthor is just the discount version of Lex Luthor. <laughs> I, my first celebrity crush was Christopher Reeve, okay? There was one night, I'd been married for about 10 years, and I was watching Death Trap on TV, and I, you see the shot of Christopher Reeve with a shirt off, and I audibly said out loud, oh my god, like, he's <laughs> an amazing man, he's beautiful, he's a fabulous actor, Gene Hackman freaking steals every second of this movie that he's in. He is so fabulous as Lex Luthor. He kills, like you said, Molly, every line. He just kills it. He's so dry-witted, such great lines. And he, even, even his dysfunctional, probably abusive relationship with Miss Texmacher, the way they play it off with each other is hilarious and, you, you know, the whole time you're, like, laughing but thinking, please get the hell away from this guy because he's nothing. He will feed you to alligators at some point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but he's so fabulous at this. And I think the – this is not only my favorite Lex Luthor. This is my favorite Gene Hackman role in, like, the history of Gene Hackman roles. My second favorite is Royal Tenenbaum from the Royal Tenenbaums. I, I like Gene Hackman when he does this sort of – caustic comedic character um and i hate to say it i don't like to talk about him or praise him right now but my second favorite lex luther for a long time was kevin spacey and it's because kevin spacey was doing his version of the gene hackman lex luther so i think he's just he's he's so perfect i also love and you didn't see it much in this movie but i loved the concept that he's he has different wigs that they that they set that up because we all know from the comics and from the cartoon that 
Lex Luthor is bald. And you only see him bald in prison in this movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, when, but when he's out, he has his collection of really wonderful wigs, which is a perfect way for Gene Hackman to keep his hair. So I thought that was such a nice thing that was put in there. And like I said, I like, the, I, I, you know, the, the, the abusive relationships that he has with Miss Tessmacher and, and Otis are so darkly comedic. And I think it's because Gene Hackman feels more like an intellectual threat than he does feel like a physical threat to you. But he really is a horrible, horrible person. You know, like that, that, that famous line from the first movie, is that how you get your kicks? By plotting the death of innocent people? No, by causing the death of innocent people. And he's really, he, he's really good at letting you think. And that's, I think, where we get the value of the French Connection conversation Gene Hackman, that sort of really gritty part of his acting ability that you're pretty sure that underneath that he, he underneath all those dry witty caustic comments that he will kill you without without a single thought so i think he's just phenomenal as this he he's he steals this movie and i think it is his best performance in in his career Oh, well, I love the, the terms caustic comedy because that very much, I think, sums up this Lex Luthor for sure. I mean, on I do have other favorite uh, versions of Lex Luthor. I was a huge fan of the way Michael Rosenbaum played him on Smallville, for example. I love that version. Um, Jesse Eisenberg, we're not even probably going to go down that road because we could be here all day. But granted, on the you know the other he was the other you know version that people know mostly when it comes to movies. Anyways, Jesse Eisenberg's version. I I really enjoyed this version of Lex Luthor's. While the Lex Luthor we got in Batman v Superman is hysterical and over the top. I think here we noticed a slight shift when compared to the two Superman movies with this Lex Luthor, because with Dick Lester at the helm, as granted, this is pretty much that same Luthor, but I think slightly more comedic and almost more of a parody of what we'd previously seen. I mean, they play up the comic, the comedic thing, I think, a little bit more. Um, he almost made me think of the kind of Lex Luthor you might see in a Batman 66 episode, which is a series I absolutely love. And I think <laughs> that's it's true. <laughs> he would, yeah, yeah. He would, he would work well, I think, in that kind of world, as it were. I mean, he is, especially the fact that because he's evil and proud of it, to the point where it is comedic. And in that in that series, you do get these villains who are just happy to be evil, as it were. So that's why I went to kind of Batman sixty six. Um, here it is, like I said, more comedic, but that does not make it less enjoyable. I think we get the more used car salesman side of Luther here. Where, <laughs> yeah. he, I mean, because he does what he can to play any situation to his advantage. And, you know, he's always like, ah, oh, you know, you're my best friend. You know, I, I, I don't like those guys. And then he's kind of switching over saying, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're creeps. I'm your friend. You know, that's why I was like, yeah, used car salesman for sure. Um, but he was Superman. Thank God. I mean, get him. <laughs> yeah. So that's so, yeah. a perfect example of that. <laughs> oh, ex- for sure. Yeah. I mean, I just love that that side of him for sure. And Gene Hackman just really steals the show in this in this movie. Um, so yeah, th- definitely fun to see on screen. It looks like we all enjoyed Lex Luthor. And speaking of villains, let's get to our Kryptonian villains. Starting with the two cronies, Sarah Douglas as Ursa and Jack O'Halloran as Non. When it came to these two, should we say, two of Zod's cronies, Zan, what did you make of Ursa and Non? 
I love Ursa. I love her. She's such a she's such a paradoxical character in the sense that she is so dismissive of and not impressed by the 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 fallacy concept that is men's superiority complexes. Although she follows the general like to the ends of the earth. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a strange, it's kind of a strange paradox, I think. But um, I think she's an, I think she's an interesting character that I would have liked a little bit more backstory for. Um, what is her deal with collecting the emblems? I thought that was an interesting aspect of her where she takes, mm-hmm. takes the, the, the NASA emblem and the sheriff's badge and where does that come from with her? I thought that was I thought that was interesting. And what what made her the way she is that she is going to follow the general? That she's so hateful and so spiteful that she's just interested in helping him rule absolutely. So I, I would have liked to have known more about her as a character. And Nan, I think, is a is a great sort of example of the brawn that's comic relief. You know, that scene where he's trying to uh, light the snake on fire like Ursa just had done. And then a little bit later, he, he's able to put like a little tiny knot hole in the truck and he's so proud of himself. Or how he rips the, he rips the uh, police flasher off of the top of the car to give it to General Zod because he said he liked that it looked like the Kryptonian sun. And... Um, and he, I think, is more—he's more simplistic. So I don't feel like I needed a lot more backstory with him. Um, there's a there's a there's a quote from the novelization of Return of the Jedi that I really like, and I think it is a good way to describe a lot of people who are just sort of mindlessly this mindless aberration, mindlessly violent. And it's there it, the it, the the book is describing the rancor. And it says that the Rancor is not evil. He's just dumb and mistreated. And I feel like that's a good way to describe Nan. I feel like if somebody else had gotten to him at the right point of his life, he would have been there, you know, he would have been their sidekick. You know, I think he's just, he's just following somebody because he's, he doesn't have a lot of mental capacity other than his, other than his ability to follow directions. So, you know, here's this big guy, you know, Jack O'Halloran was a boxer. Um, this big guy that can follow, follow you around and be your muscle. And, but if Superman had gotten to him, then he would have just been like, here, help me, help me lift this train of people that is falling into the, into the water. You know, so it just sort of depended on who he would have run into at what point of his life that he would have maybe been a different type of a character. So, but I I did, I did want more backstory on Ursa for sure. Nice. And, uh, and what about you, Molly? What did you make of Ursa and Non? I agree with San about all of that for sure. And especially about Ursa. I really wanted to know more because I think that her character was so compelling. And I really liked the way that Sarah Douglas played her as kind of this like oh, she's cold so good. and just like this 
it just dripping with how evil she is. Cold and, and evil and sexy all at the same time. It was, she was so fabulous. She just killed it. Oh, she was amazing. And so with Nan, though, I was when I was watching it, I turned to my dad and I was like, what is even happening with this character? I was like, he's just there. He's like, he reminded me of a much dumber Chewbacca where he just kind <laughs> yeah. of grunts at people and just is a meat shield. And I, I liked that element. Like it was, it was funny, but sometimes like there were, uh, there, there was some, there were a lot of logic elements that I was like, okay, but it, they, I thought earlier in it, I might've misheard this, but earlier in it, didn't they say that he wasn't, Mute? Didn't they say that he could talk? He just didn't? I'm not sure about that. In fact, I was actually wondering about that too. But uh, I, at the, be- at yeah. the beginning with the, with the council, they say something about, well, I know they call him a mindless aberration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, don't remember if the, I don't remember if that's the first one or this one, but then they talk about, I think they, I think they give you more explanation as to who they are at the beginning of the first movie. Um. And I think they do mention him being, I think Brando mentions him being mute, but I'd have to rewatch it again to double check. Because at I think the beginning you... of this, I thought they said you're at, um, you're as, you're as guilty as you are able to speak or something. And I was like, wait, what? That's yeah, a that's... strangely worded line. So I that wasn't is, sure. That is weird. Yeah. Because he, like I said, I think, because the, the, the version of this, the, the beginning of this movie is very like previously on Superman. But they had to redo it without without Brando. But I think I think in the original Brando does mention something about him being being mute. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. I was I was I was wondering. So I'm like, wait. If he if he's choosing not to speak, why is that? Why is he with this group? Because I had read like a kids comic of this before, and Ursa and Zod were married in that, and so I was like, oh. Okay, that makes more sense, but now it's just just General Zod and his two lackeys that suddenly appeared here and went rogue, and they all wear a lot of very shiny fabric. Yeah. Very much so. I'll give you $10. They're from Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I Well, I, there are interesting characters, indeed. I mean, when it comes to Ursa, I mean, Zan, you, you uh, discussed Flash Gordon with me on this podcast. I very much got a General Carla vibe when it came to her. So much, yes. Even also with the way, the commerce relationship she has with Zod to a certain extent. That's why I kind of got the, the Carla, Carla Dior, as it were. And, I th- and of course, you know, Sarah Douglas is no stranger to playing a villain. For all you Conan fans, she was also the evil Queen Taramis in Conan the Destroyer. So she's, she's used to playing these kind of characters. She is, of course, you know, an incredibly formidable warrior. And of course, is almost subservient to nobody except uh, Zod, to whom she's just loyal to death, as it were. And she may actually, I think, be more bloodthirsty than him. And he's actually, I think, more of a tactician than he is. As she's the one who kind of points out, you know, everybody's weaknesses, you know, Superman's attachment to humanity. And I also think that Antia Traue took notes from her when it came to her patrol Faora in Man of Steel. Because you do get, granted, it's not the same character, but 
I think she was watching this when she was working on playing Foul Rain, Man of Steel. So that's what I got as well. And when it came to you, you pointed out, Zan, about the fact that she collects these, uh, you know, logos, as it were, and stuff. I think well, maybe it's because almost as a serial killer collects trophies, it could be her way of collecting trophies from her victims, I guess. But um, that's the only thing I got on that one. But uh but yeah, she's incredibly devious, and I think it's, it's almost fanatical in her love and support for Zods. That's why, once again, the whole General Carla thing of being very dedicated and fanatical to a particular ideal. Um, when it comes to Non, I had a little bit of trouble with him, as he is very much your hired goon, and I got uh, a, a Bane vibe when it came to him, the Batman Forever Bane, mind you, uh, because... He was just around for comedic reasons, and he did sometimes annoy me. As he, he was basically your mindless, grunting bully, and I'm not really a fan of that kind of character, and you can actually hear my thoughts on when it came to Bane on our Batman Forever review. That was absolutely awful. I would have almost preferred just having Ursa and Zod, and in the comics, you know, it, it, just like in the comics kind of thing, I mean, he does make an appearance, but he can actually talk. So I would have preferred that maybe he could have said something, but I guess maybe he is... Dick Lester doing comedies and stuff, then he maybe wanted to give us this comedic character, you know, something to laugh at, as it were. So that's maybe maybe uh, the way it was. But yeah, those those are my thoughts on that. When it went, so let's get to the leader of the pack, ladies, and the man who pretty much wants nothing more than for you to kneel before him, Terence Stamp as General Zod, whom our listeners might know from Billy Budd, The Collector, The Phantom Menace, and so much more. So when it came to our leader of the Kryptonians, uh, Molly, what did you think of General Zod? I, I loved the actor, once again. I thought that I was, at one point when I was watching, I believe it was one of the fight scenes, and I just turned to my dad and I said, the casting in this is so good. Like, it just is, it just feels so right. Like, I could not picture other people in a lot of these characters. And so I have kind of a question about this. Is this a thing in the comics, his thing with kneeling? Because I found that interesting. Like, he's just only wants people to kneel. Like, I can understand a character wanting to take over the world, him having these, like, plans for humanity, essentially. Mm. But after he does that, he takes over. He doesn't really do anything. Well, I mean, the, in the comics, just, uh, in the comics yeah. he's, uh, he is basically uh, the Kryptonian version of a fascist, as it were, and he's just like, he very much sort of antagonizes Superman, the fact that he uses his powers for good, and Zod is all about, you know, colonizing, so he's not really, the whole kneeling thing is very much the movie, it's not really much in the comics, but, uh, but yeah, uh, go ahead, Molly, what, what were you going to say? Yeah, I, 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 oh, a point that I did love, though, is when he asked the president to kneel, and when he did, he went, okay, you're not, you're not the actual president, because the real president, a real leader. Yeah, I love that, too. That, and then the real leader came out. I thought that was so good. Like, there was, a, there's a lot, this movie has a lot of problems, but that was one of the moments, for sure, that I loved. Um... Like I said before, all of their shiny clothes were amazing. Uh, I'm trying to think about my thoughts on him. He didn't, though he was like the main villain in this, he, I felt like he didn't have a lot to do. He, he has a very one-track mind. I, I feel like it's easier to talk about Ursa and Nan, who have so much more. And like, there's so much more to build on with their characters. 
interesting point is i mean i guess you because you he is kind of one track mind and kind of just does the whole thing neil kind of thing so that was just the kind of his 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 shtick as it were what about you zan i mean what did you think of, of terence stamp and in general zod well i absolutely adore terence stamp and i think he just killed this it was sort of a comeback movie for him and i think he he absolutely just knocked this one right out of the park general zod and, and i will say i I very much like this sort of psychotic hell-bent on domination General Zod much more than I like the Michael Shannon racist General Zod. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of a lot of Michael Shannon was why are you with these mud people? <laughs> he was very yeah. he was he was very all about like Kryptonian purity and I was like okay well yeah I mean I know we have a history of fascism that kind of was hiding behind that but i really do like a psycho more than i like a racist when it comes to character development um and with general zod it, it, he's very in this movie he's very much the count of monte cristo in that he is obsessed with revenge i think he's you know the whole bow down thing i think just sort of comes from his desire to to rule the world and or rule whatever world he's you know like that there's that scene is like you know we'll go there to rule finally to rule like that's what he wants he wants to be the all-powerful dictator but what's driving him after you know he he goes he goes to the you know he goes to planet earth or planet houston as he calls it (laughs) and he winds up in, like I said, East Houston, Iowa, which is a town, what do they say? It's like a town of like 136 or something like that. Yeah. And he, he's even sort of like, these are primitive creatures, but I guess we're here. We might as well rule. This is what I do. You know, he's, he has that, that psychotic drive to dominate other people with, a, with, a, with an iron fist. But, it, but, but what's really driving him once... Lex Luthor shows up to the White House is revenge, is the fact that he has the son of his jailer in his in his grasp. And I think that's what that's what keeps him going through that last half of the movie is that, well, wait a minute, he's here. Oh, this is going to be good. And even and it's he almost has like a Freudian slip at the end of the movie where he. He. After he's been in the, after Superman does the switcheroo in the chamber and takes away their powers and he gets out of the chamber and he walks over to Zod and Zod says, and now, finally, kneel and swear eternal loyalty to Zod. And I think it's funny that he says the finally that way because he's just met Kal-El. <laughs> He's not been waiting for this for, for you know, the last thirty some years that he's been in the, in the, Phantom Zone. He's saying that in his mind, I think, to Jor-El, that he's like, finally, I have you. You know, he's he's he it, he can't have Jor-El, and this is the next best thing, and it's finally happening for him. So it's almost like a little Freudian slip for him. So, I also find revenge as a as a um, plot device, fascinating. I love revenge stories, like when good people get revenge on bad people or anyone gets their comeuppance in a movie. Love it. Movie, book, 
anything love comeuppance and revenge stories <laughs> so i like that as a i like that as a, i think that's an interesting device for a motivator for a person because like like the count of money christo you realize how much it can poison you when that's your obsession and this is exactly what happens to general zod you know you wonder you guys didn't feel anything <laughs> when this was going on because i would imagine that even superman when he went through his transformation like the second he got out of that, he'd be like, "Oh my God, my back hurts!" Like just something <laughs> would would be painful, or he'd have he'd realize that he had, um, you know, a torn rotator cuff from flying. I don't know, but you would think that they would have felt something. But I think he was even if they did feel something, I think he was so obsessed with the idea that his vengeance was finally going to come to fruition that he probably didn't even notice. He probably didn't even pay any attention to anything that he might have felt he probably was just feeling tingly because he was excited that it was finally going to happen for him so but yeah i think I, I i do think zod as a character as a psychotic is fantastic and i think terrence stamp does a fabulous fabulous job and i'll, I'll tell you guys a funny little story go ahead um my uh my husband when he was watching smallville he said, and I wasn't, I wasn't watching, he was watching it, and, and so I was asking questions about it, and I said, so is Jor-El in this? Like, who plays Jor-El in Smallville? He's like, the absolute last person you would expect to play Jor-El. <laughs> and I said, what? I said, what, Terrence Stamp? He's like, yep. <laughs> it's just, it was just funny that, like, to me, like, that is, that is the absolute opposite of Jor-El, is Terrence Stamp. <laughs> Quite a role reversal, indeed. Yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a great job as, as Jarrell in that in that series indeed I mean uh, I mean as, as, as I'm sure Chris enjoyed it I, I definitely did as well um and it's interesting that you mentioned Michael Shannon Zan because on my rewatch I actually had Michael Shannon's version of this character on my mind and the two of course differ very much seeing also I guess the time period but there are, I think some similar traits I mean granted this zod like you were saying is much more of a, I guess a space tyrant and psychotic who wants to literally take over worlds in general and then as an afterthought almost it becomes a revenge story because he finds out through Lex Luthor that um, Jor-El's son is living on Earth um, but also unlike Michael Shannon's Zod this version does not shout as much he's much more I think of a cold and steely character once he's again psycho. using another, yeah yeah almost, you know, to, to use the uh, once again another Flash Gordon reference almost a Ming kind of um, kind of Zod, if you will, because he seems almost more quiet, as it were. I mean, he does yell every now and then, but he doesn't sort of... Shannon really sort of belts it out all the time, I guess, because he is that Kryptonian Nazi, as you, if you will, kind of barking out orders and stuff. Here, I think, because you have that self-entitlement and importance, which I think Ming also has a lot, and that kind of inbred superiority, because you know right. you're superior, but you don't have to yell about it. Um, in fact, you barely see him lose his temper. I think he's very much th that authoritative character and, um, and and does this Superman villain, very well-known Superman villain, Justice for sure. I thought also was interesting is that the famous uh, gripe which caused fans and moviegoers watching Man of Steel to be very upset, we also get in this film, but with a difference, because you have Superman, you know, ha has Zod in his grip, as it were, but he doesn't break his neck. And, uh, and I yeah. thought... This is how you do it, you know, because I know so many people were upset about Henry Cavill, you know, breaking Michael Shannon's neck. And here was actually, I was said, oh, no, it's going to happen all over again. But of course it didn't. And they just kind of fall down somewhere in the Fortress of Solitude. Now, 
Speaking of extra powers, Zod also gets extra powers. And I wonder, was wondering what you thought about this, what, especially the telekinesis, which we see him use at one point, where he literally picks people up from the ground and kind of throws them around. Zan, what did you make of this? I mean, the fact that, you know, that we don't really see him use it as much after that episode. Yeah, it's very... Again, like I said, I think this movie sort of makes up powers to further its own script and it's not it's sort of going oh hey yeah kryptonians can do this because i think it would look cool (laughs) so i don't i don't necessarily agree with a lot of that stuff um it's i did want to say something that you mentioned about michael shannon and and henry cavill breaking his neck that's an interesting you're right because he it looks like he's killing the kryptonians but we never see bodies do we nope and there, I think there was supposed to be something originally in the script where, like, somebody found them. You know, like some sort of Arctic exploration team found them. And so, like, they were they were alive, but you know, they're not Kryptonians anymore, so it's it's okay. They're not dangerous. But yeah, you don't see you don't see bodies because I will admit that 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 did me in on Man of Steel. When I saw that happen, I said, "Nope, this is not Superman. This is not how this is supposed to work." Um, this, there was a lot of stuff like this that happened, I think, throughout all of these movies, uh, the first three, for sure. Um, like you said, the telekinesis, the, the teleportation, (laughs) um, time travel, and just little things like that where, you know, the, the scene in, uh, in Houston where he, you know, picks up that guy, you know, and you, then we have our, our uh, British American farm boy who makes no sense to me whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Please put my daddy down. Yeah. Where are we? Okay. <laughs> Do you not know what the, what the Western part of the United States and the Midwestern part of the United States sounds like, but yeah, where he picks up that guy in the air and just lets him drop. Um, Superman does stuff kind of like that in uh, Superman 3 also. It's like, where are these powers coming from? And I think they're just coming from the writers thinking, oh, hey, he's an alien. We don't know what he can do. So I don't necessarily like it. I mean, it, it, it's I'll forgive it because there's other things in this movie that are cool. But it does sort of throw you out of the movie. You're like, wait, what? When did this? When did this happen? Because Superman is such an established character. If it were somebody brand new for the movie that'd be different but he is an established character with established powers and established rules and there are often times where i'll ask my husband like okay so when in the comics did this happen he'll just look at me and like kind of shake his head like yeah i don't know where that's all about (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure Um, and and what about you molly i mean what did you make of uh, should we say zod's telekinesis and you know possibly the 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 uh the fact that he could have broke that um um, Superman could have broken Zod's neck, but didn't compared to Man of Steel. Well, yeah, I, I don't think, I think Superman is way too ethical. As I said before, he's got this, like, almost, for lack of a better term, like this Mary Sue-ish quality to him, mm-hmm. where he, I don't think that he would have broken his neck. So I definitely agreed with this version over Man of Steel. But, so... One of my complaints about Superman as a character is I always felt like he was too overpowered. Mm. And I always felt like there was nothing that could beat him. Something I liked in this movie is that he did lose in a fight, which I did really enjoy. But 
then they just gave him all these extra powers on top of his already overpoweredness. And so I was just kind of shaking my head through all this. I'm like, this is not, he's already has way too many. He's already like this unbeatable character. And now they're just adding to it because it'll look fun. And there was another moment actually with Zod um, and Ursa, or it might've been Ursa. I'm not sure which one, but they were, so Superman has frost breath that's established. And then they go, Oh, use your new power. And she blows and it just blows wind. And then later (laughs) Superman use does the same exact motion and it blows frost. So how does that work? How do you, how does he choose if it blows frost or wind? I was, I was like, okay, it's very convenient. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) they have, yeah. Yeah. In the Donner, in the Donner cut, um, like I said, there's no France and there's Lois Lane doesn't throw herself into the Niagara whirlpool to prove that Superman is that Clark Kent is Superman. She throws herself out of the window of the daily planet. So she uh, jumps out the window and he just runs really fast, which we've seen he can do. He runs really fast downstairs. And then when he gets down to the sidewalk, he does that blowing motion. He like blows on her a little bit. So she stays in the air and like he can slow her down on a pocket of air. And then he uses his heat vision to open the latch of the awning that goes over the daily planet entrance. And then she bounces off of the awning softly, but then falls onto a fruit truck, like a fruit cart. Um, But yeah, Superman does that too. Like he, he blows on her, but it's not cold. It's just a strong gust of wind that keeps her from plummeting. So apparently that's a thing Kryptonians can do. I don't know. I don't know how they decide it's cold or if it's just strong wind. You would think that if he was going to blow on Lois Lane, he would freeze her. (laughs) But it's, yeah, it's very convenient. It's a very convenient, hey, we'll do this because it works for the script. And there's a lot of his powers, too, just before this that I was always like, how does how does that work? Like his super strength. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. But how is he lifting stuff up? How is he hugging Lois Lane? If he has super strength, wouldn't that be like, he has to barely touch things. How many like puppies did the Kents go through? Yeah, it's like, how many things did he know before he learned how to hold stuff? Yeah, like, like how many, like did, did Mrs. Kent have like a broken clavicle at one point? With, like, that scene in the first movie where he's a baby and he hugs her really hard. Like, you would think he might break her neck bone doing that. Like, how, what was the trial and error period for Superman to figure out what his strength levels were? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah and, and then to that point, they've got, they also have, like, flight. Okay, I can get that. Like, he just has to, like, do his jumpy thing. But then, like, the frost breath and the gust of wind breath and the heat and the vision. Heat like, how vision. is he not just burning things? Yeah, what 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 is the and it's funny too because when you watch Terrence Stamp do the heat vision, like he kind of does like an evil eye squinty thing. But Christopher Reeve will sometimes just open his eyes really wide. Like so what what does the heat vision? I I I, it feels like even in the confines of this movie, it's inconsistent. (laughs) 
It is for sure. Um, and I, I actually hope the Kents, I think the Kents were probably insured on everything because those Seriously. between furniture and what have you must have had some serious insurance. I hope for them at least. Um, so ladies, any final thoughts on this film before we get to ratings? Um, not for me. No. Zan? Oh boy. Final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um... I would just like to remind the world that America is not like Texas because <laughs> I really felt like this was a typical British trope of Americans are like dumb rednecks with all of the added Houston scenes. Like there's, there are some in the original movie, there are some Houston scenes like the, the guy in the fishing boat and the newscast and the police where they come up to them on the, on the, you know, standing in the road, but there's, but the original movie didn't have the whole, they have a wide selection. I don't want to eat fish conversation. Uh, they didn't, it did not have the arm wrestling and it didn't have the, please put my tattoo down. It didn't have that. So, there was some, I think there was a lot of ridiculousness that was put into that, I think, for a British concept of comic relief when it comes to Americans. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's, it's weird to me. And I'm sure the British hate it when there's an American trope of like the Cockney chimney sweep in, you know, trying, you know, or, or, uh, or they, all of- we do is drink tea and eat crumpets. All we do is drink teeny crumpets or we're just football hooligans. Like there are, there are definitely those tropes that I think um, we're, they're probably sick of with us too, but I would just, yeah, I would just like to remind the world of that. <laughs> that <it's, laughs> there's, there's, there's way more parts of America than, than dumb rednecks. We've got plenty of those, but there's way more parts of America. <laughs> well, well said indeed, Zan. And actually um, our mutual fr- with our mutual friend, Charles Skaggs, uh, him and I actually talked about Dick Van Dyke and his terrible, terrible British accent. Oh, believe- good God. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> I believe the two of you. Maybe this is revenge for Mary Poppins. That's what this is. <laughs> yeah, I believe the two of you actually touched up on it at one point on uh, on Ghostwood as well. But yeah, it's it's it, you know everybody remembers Dick Van Dyke, especially for that terrible accent. But uh, but yeah, I very very well said indeed. So let's get to ratings here then. Where does this movie rate for you on a scale of one to ten? Let's start with you, Molly. Oh, I would have to say. Okay, now I'm going to add all this crazy criteria to it. All right. Um, I think on, like, a fun writing, like, just having it be, like, a fun, like, popcorn movie. Like, it's just fluffy. It's, like, a good action-y movie. I would probably peg it at, like, a seven. Mm-hmm. Like, don't think too hard, but it's fun. They've got some good actors in it. The costumes are fun to look at. It's got some funny parts. But for, like, a film film oh i don't know where i would probably be pretty low because it, it's just the, the logical errors in it mm. but i think if you would if you look over those it would be much higher mm. well good points and, and what about you zan where what do you give this film out of 10 you know molly's right about how this is a conflicting <laughs> you, have, <laughs> you have conflicting feelings on this movie um this movie has a lot of problems it has a lot of silliness. It has a lot of, wait a minute, what? 
moments. Like I said, why does the wood part of the shotgun heat up with the heat vision? That doesn't make any sense. It would just catch on fire. It has little things like that. So you, there are a lot of things you can pick apart and say, what is this? What is that? And, you know, knowing the backstory of how this movie was made, um, it has issues. But again, it has good people. And it has, you know, what's better than Superman? Three Supermans. <laughs> you know? It has good parts in it and it has good things. So we, when, I, when I do a rating, I do it based on me. Um, and for me, whether or not I enjoy a movie has nothing to do with whether or not this is a good movie. Okay. I enjoy watching Teen Wolf and Mannequin. Okay. Not good movies, but I enjoy them very much. <laughs> So I think on a scale of enjoyment and nostalgia and performance, I give this one an eight. But again, like Molly said, don't think about it too hard because your rating will go down because this is not, this is, this is not, you know, like cinema. This is not high cinema or anything like that. This is, you're going to have some fun. You're going to watch Superman beat some stuff up and you are going to watch way more product placement than you ever had, than you ever should have to. Oh my you know, gosh. They started, they started the out with the product. Oh my God. If you, yeah, you're going to watch this movie and you're one going to drink Coca-Cola and eat KFC and you're not going to know why. <laughs> they started out with the product placement in the first movie. And even I noticed it as a child, that scene where it's Dawn at the Kent farm and she very slowly and very deliberately and very visibly puts a box of Cheerios on the table. And I just remember thinking like, what is this a Cheerios commercial? And I was probably like four years old when I saw this. Um, and it, yeah, so let's, let's throw, let's throw General Zod into a Coca-Cola sign or let's throw Superman into a Marlboro truck and let's have people blow away in front of the KFC. It just, there are things like that that I think that definitely do detract from this movie. And I, and I think it's a good lesson in product placement in your movie needs to be way more minimal than this, but I, for enjoyment, I def I give it an eight. I, I do like this movie quite a bit. Well, uh, well that was, that's definitely uh, two great, uh, great points there, Zan. I mean, when it comes to me, I'm going to give this, I think a six and a half out of 10 as it is a good sequel, but in my opinion, not as good as its predecessor. Granted, that was a very tough act to follow. And I do enjoy this film, but at times I did find it a little bit silly and possibly maybe too uh, Dick Lester-ish. I mean, I love what he did with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love what he did with the Beatles. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, here it's a different subject matter. It doesn't play well here. Yeah. It yeah. Yeah, so so that that was my problem with it. But on the other hand, it's it, it was always a joy. Like you've been, you've said quite a bit here, Zan, to see Christopher Reeve as Superman. That is always a joy, and so I think mm -hmm. that's why I give it a six and a half out of ten. Um, so let's get to reading recommendations here. Did any of did either of you have any stories you would like to suggest comic book wise when it came to to this movie or or super or favorite Superman stories? Um, I don't know a lot about the comics, and I've not read very many, so I'm probably not the best person for this. So, Zan and Nick, I will leave this up to you. Okay. Zan, did you have any, 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 any reading recommendations when it came to Superman? Um, I would say, well, if you can get in, you know, any sort of General Zod story is going to be interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. that, would, that would be good. But I think when it comes to Superman... Probably it doesn't get any better when it's being written by Frank Whiteley. The, the, his recent books of the last 20 years 
his, the Frank Whiteley run on Superman. Um, so if you can get a hold of those, I highly recommend them. Oh, very well said. I'm going to suggest two stories in particular. One is Superman Last Son, which collects action comics from 844 to 847 and also 851 from 2006, written by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, of all people, with art by Adam Kubert. After, in the, the main story here is after a mysterious young Kryptonian boy crashes, crash lands on Earth, Clark Kent is tasked with figuring out this child's origins as well as protecting him from the evil men that want to abuse his immense power. General Zod, who once again manages to escape the Phantom Zone, I mean, the guy's kind of in and out of the Phantom Zone, he bombards Superman with hundreds of other Phantom Zone prisoners, resulting in a huge showdown as Lex Luthor, Bizarro, Parasite, and Metallo take on Zod and his fellow Kryptonian fugitives. That's Superman Last Son. And also I would suggest Strike Force Superman, which is collected in Action Comics 779 to 782 from 2001, written by Joe Kelly and drawn by Duncan Rouleau. In this case, growing up in a KGB laboratory, this story arc features a very different version of General Zod, who sports red armor and a Russian accent. He's actually Russian Zod, if you will, known as Avryushkin of Pokolistan, who's actually the child of two cosmonauts, whose ship just happens to fly a little too close to Kalel's escape pod, irradiating this child while in the womb. And unlike Superman, Russian Zod is weaker under the Earth's yellow sun and made more powerful by the rays of a red sun. And that's Strike Force Superman from 2001. So, aside from taking notes on these great comics, dear listeners, if you want to be like Zan and Molly and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We also really appreciate your thoughts and feedback about the show. You can reach out to us with those also at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com, and we'll read them out here on the show. Feel free to show your support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness and Darkness. You can follow us on Twitter, we're at High Darkness Pods, or on Instagram under Hin Darkness. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast and feeling generous, you can check out the great tiers we have going on on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash happinessanddarkness. We definitely really appreciate that. Among these, any donators will be able to pick the movie we next discuss, pick one of the recurring co-hosts we discuss it with, or come on the show themselves to discuss the movie of their choice. And a lot more besides, so definitely be sure to check that out. That's patreon.com slash happinessanddarkness. So, ladies, when it comes to you and the wonderful things that you do, where can our fine listeners find you on the interwebs? Let's start with you, Zan. Well, first of all, i got to go back and uh, amend my previous statement, because otherwise I'm going to get divorced. <laughs> um, <laughs> you definitely need to go back and check out Action Comics number 14 uh, from 2012, uh, the one where Superman meets Neil deGrasse Tyson and sees, uses the Hayden Planetarium to see the last light of Krypton finally being extinguished. So, so now definitely check that out. <laughs> My marriage is fine now. We're good. We're good. I'm not going to get divorced now. So, uh, <laughs> so now that I'll still be living in the same house, you can find me on the internet and all my usual internet places. I'm on Facebook as Zan Sprouse and the Twitter and the Instagram as Udenax19. And in the podcast realm, you can hear me and Nick talk about movies and the occasional Simpsons reference on the Gold Standard Oscars podcast. And uh, with Charles Skaggs and the Ghostwood Twin Peaks podcast. Fantastic. And what about you, Molly? Where can folks find you on the interwebs? 
All right, this one's going to be a long one, so <laughs> buckle up. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at What's Molly Making. That's my food blog. And you can find my podcast, Read Between the Lines, which is a book podcast, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Tumblr at Read Between the Lines podcast. And on that show, I interview a bunch of authors, and it's really fun. Um, you can find my new podcast, very new, like barely launched, um, the first six podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr at the first six podcast. I'm actually wearing um, merch for that show right now, and that's a TV podcast. Oh, and you can also follow my community fan account on Tumblr at Steady Mermaid. Fantastic. Well, and when it comes to me, for you country music lovers, I also host the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play traditional country, today's country, and everything else in between. For more about that and how and where to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. As Zan was mentioning, podcast-wise, feel free to also check out our latest project, Gold Standard, the Oscars Movie Podcast, where, of course, with Zan, as you've heard, of course, and Rachel Friend, we are reviewing all the movies that won the Oscars for Best Picture from 1927's Wings to the Present Day. Actually, we're looking forward to this upcoming episode, which we'll be doing on Thursday, August 6th, where we'll be discussing the fifth film to win Best Picture, Grand Hotel. And uh, you know, to add to what Zan was saying, should any listeners wish to join us from that discussion, you can email us for a guest spot or share your thoughts on a particular movie at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Definitely love hearing from you guys and also appreciate the follow and support. And last but definitely not least, Titan Talk, the Titans podcast. I've recently become a member of the Titan Talk family, which is, of course, originally made up of Jesse Jackson and Charles Skaggs, two wonderful people. And recently now with Charles, I, we have been reviewing the second season of Doom Patrol. Sure, check that out. That is Titan Talk, the Titans podcast. And speaking of things to come on this show, next week we'll be joined by John Janchek and a special surprise guest, to discuss the 2014 Brian Singer film, X-Men Days of Future Past. That said, when it comes to you, Zan, when it comes to you, Molly, I want to both thank you so, so much for joining me today and definitely look forward to having you back very soon. Thanks for hey. having us. Thank you so much for having us on. This was great. I will thank you both very much. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next week with John Janchek, our surprise guest, and Days of Future Past. Until then, stay super. Ciao, my people.